0: I'm going to invite our wonderful Dan Hater, who is among us, to continue our Ephesians preaching series. Dan, let me pray for you. Father, thank you for um, this man. Lord, thank you that he loves your word, uh, scripture, and your word is life to us. And and Lord, I pray as he speaks to us this morning, Lord, that he would speak uh, what you would have us hear. Uh, this morning, Lord. And as I pray, uh, I pray as he speaks, Lord, that we would have ears to hear uh, what you're saying towards us, uh, to us. Um, yeah. Thank you, Father. Anoint him, speak through him. Uh, we receive this man among us. Uh, thank you, Lord. Amen. 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 Good to see you all. I'm sorry if my voice is a little bit croaky. I've been uh, battling with a bit of a cold, but um, hopefully I will <laughs> not lose my voice before the end. <laughs> But it's um, yeah wonderful to see all of you, wonderful to be here. We're going to be looking at the Word of God together today. We're in a, a, a series on the book of Ephesians. In fact, we're coming towards the end of it at the moment. Um, this is the second to last week as we're working our way through that book. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, if you could open up Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be. And um, what we've been doing for the last few weeks is the first half of Ephesians teaches us what God has done. The second half of Ephesians teaches us, therefore, what should our lives look like? And that's what we've been doing for the last few weeks. And in particularly last week and this one, we've been looking at certain relationships that are transformed by the fact that we've met Jesus. So last week, we looked at how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, transforms marriages, transforms husband and wife relationships. And this week, we're going to look at how the gospel transforms two kinds of relationships, where one person is in charge and another person isn't. So there are relationships where one person's in charge and another one isn't in charge. And so we're going to look at two of those kind of relationships today, and those are parents and children and slaves and masters. Now, bear with me on the second one. We will explain. Some of you might have immediately have loads of questions. We will explain how on earth do we think through what, the fact that the Bible talks about slavery, slaves and masters. We will get on to that. But we're looking at two kinds of In-charge, not-in-charge relationships. Children and parents, slaves and masters. And um, Paul deals with those relationships very differently in the specifics, you'll notice. But there's one thing that groups all of it together, and that's the idea that as followers of Jesus, our relationships with others should gravitate around Jesus. So if you think of perhaps the moon and the earth as two human beings relating to each other, moon goes around the earth, so we could think of it that way that relationship ultimately goes around the sun. Our relationships as followers of Jesus are meant to gravitate around Jesus, and that transforms the way that we do all our relationships, including those that involve someone being in charge and someone not being in charge. So we're going to look at... Children and parents, and then slaves and masters. And what we're going to do is we're going to read the chunk that is about children and parents first. Then I'll preach on that. Then we'll read the chunk that is about slaves and masters, and then I'll preach on that. So we look at the first four verses, first of all. So let's read Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise, so that, you, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. bit of a disclaimer before we start on this. I'm not a parenting expert. I have two very young children. You may have seen me trying to parent well as we figure out how to do that with two young children. So I'm not an expert in any way, so please don't come to me for expert parenting tips. What I'm going to try and do is preach the Word of God and teach what it tells us. And so I am definitely speaking to myself as much as anyone else as I'm I'm preaching on this. But another thing that's helpful to realise is that certain parts of Scripture teach things that aren't directly relevant to every single person. So in this case, children in the room, and there are a few, and parents will be the most directly addressed. But actually, it's really helpful for all of us to know what the Bible teaches to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So even if some of you here may not be parents or you may not be children, or it may be that you are parents, but your children are grown up, and so these this passage doesn't quite apply in the same way it's really helpful for us to be able to encourage one another and know what the bible says to each one of us not just what the bible says directly to us so can i encourage you to listen even if you don't find yourself in a parent or a child relationship so what does it look like for parent and children relationships to gravitate around Jesus? What does it look like to center that relationship around Jesus? And I think this passage helps us to avoid two, I think, very common mistakes, mistakes that are made very commonly, I think in all cultures, but that you would probably recognize in our culture. I think it's got some real wisdom to avoid two probably extremes. The first mistake is this. In a family, children and parents are all on a level playing field everyone's really good friends, they get on really well, everyone's got an equal say, no one's in charge, no one's expected to obey, everyone gets on really well. Well, the problem with that is that Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He doesn't say, parents, obey your children in the Lord, for this is right. And actually, parenting in light of the gospel doesn't mean that family is a democracy, It's really important for us to realise that. The the word obedience gets really bad press in our culture because it's thought of as an oppressive thing. But actually done well in a loving, caring relationship, obedience is a good thing. Isn't that what happens with our relationship with God? And so we have to make sure that our minds aren't shaped by the culture that we live in that sees the idea of one person obeying another as an oppressive thing by, by itself. Paul says, "'Children, obey your parents in the Lord, "'for this is right.'" What Paul means by that is God has set things up in such a way that parents are in charge and that children are not, and that's a good thing, and it's for their good. We need, to, we need to understand this. We need to get beyond the possible offense that our culture might have at that idea and get to the reality that God has set things up in a certain way, not so that, as parents, we can have a power trip. Not so we can go, I'm in charge, you listen to me because I enjoy that sense of power. That's wrong. (laughs) I recognize that in my heart a lot, but it's wrong. No, God has put us in charge, those of us who are parents, for the good of our children. And that looks different at different ages. So that will look very different for our two and four-year-old as it will for those of you who are parenting teenagers. There's wisdom that's needed. We need one another's help. We need to research how to parent well in the specifics But we must not let the fact that sometimes the the obedience and um, being in charge and not in charge is abused, we mustn't let the fact that that's abused make us throw the baby out of the bathwater. And tragically, some people do abuse the reality of parents being in charge and children not being in charge. And they use it to harm children. And that's wrong. It's evil. It's horrible. And actually, as a church, we have a responsibility to be looking out and safeguarding children amongst us and so i, I want to we, we mustn't hear what i'm not saying some people can abuse it but that idea of parents being in charge children not being in charge is a good thing when it's done well and paul in fact backs this up with scripture so he says this is right this is the way that god set it up and in fact i'm going to back it up with a passage from the old testament he quotes one of the ten commandments he says honor your father and mother Which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. What's going on there? Well, I don't think Paul's saying, if children obey their parents, God will give them longer life. I don't think that's quite what he's saying. I don't think he means that there's a direct correlation between whether God allows you to live and whether you obey your parents. I think what Paul's making is a point of wisdom. Saying, as a general principle, when Parents who, most of the time, when children are younger, particularly know better, ask their children to do something and the children obey. That generally leads to life working better. Sometimes it is a matter of life or death. I experienced that in the last few days with our two year old. If we shout at Aura, don't jump onto the road, and she doesn't listen, I mean, okay, we're going to physically grab her, obviously. But you can see sometimes when they're younger, you can almost think, yeah, yeah, that you may live long life in the land. I've, I've thought of this passage a few times in the last few days. I've gone, obey your parents that you may live long life in the land. But I don't think that's the only point Paul's making. I think he's saying that when this relationship is done well, it leads to life working better. And so we need to make sure that we avoid that extreme. The extreme of saying, well, actually, kids are in charge of their own lives. Well, we want them to grow up to the point where they are mature enough to make their own decisions and so on. But there's a process in which, as parents, we are in charge for the good of our children. And it's a good thing for children to not just blindly obey, although when they're very young, actually, there is something to be said for that, but to grow to trust us and to say, actually, I've learned over the years that when mum and dad say that I should do something, they generally get it right. And sometimes they get it wrong and they apologize for it. But most of the time they get it right. And that's that's a good thing. And I think it models the gospel. We have a father who is in charge. There's no sense in which we're in charge of God. But he is not in charge for our bad. He's in charge for our good. So let's make sure we avoid that mistake. But having said that, there's the mistake on the other end as well, which Paul addresses in verse 4, which is the idea that parents exasperate their children. They basically just drive their kids crazy. Now, there there can be a number of ways that we could do this that we're going to look at. But Paul says, don't go to that extreme. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. This is verse four. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So as parents, we are called, we have a responsibility before God to be in charge. We must not exasperate our children though, which is the idea of intentionally, or sometimes not intentionally, doing things that aren't really for their good, that will drive them to just be... they just go nuts, like, why, why are you doing this? This is not doing me any good whatsoever. And there's a number of ways that we can do that. I'm sure you could think of many more, but one would be ignoring them. It's a big thing, I think, for a lot of... I mean, how many, how many Disney-style films do we know where the big problem that's going on is the dad is always working, never spending time with his kids, and the family and, and the kids are just exasperated from it. You think, oh, we've got to be careful, but especially when this little device is involved. I'm really preaching to myself now because how often am I sp- spending time with my kids? And what I'm actually doing is watching them play whilst checking my messages or checking my emails. Okay, there's a, we don't have to constantly be playing with our children, but there's that reality of do we spend time with our children? Because if we don't, it will exasperate them, and that's something Paul doesn't want for us. It could be, and this again, I'm just preaching myself, so if you want to listen in, that's fine. Um, Having too high an expectation for their age. Oh, this is me. (laughs) I expect my four-year-old to act like a nine-year-old. That's exasperating. Our four-year-old and our two-year-old do not have the emotional intelligence of an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old. So we need to make sure, as parents, that we're treating them the way that they can process things. It doesn't mean you just let them do anything. But it does mean that you don't have the expectation that they will live in the same way that a child who is double their age will. Because if you expect them to, it will exasperate them. Then there's the flip side of that, which is where you're, kind of, where you're not having any expectations of your children. Where it's like, well, okay, well, we'll just let them do whatever. We don't want to exasperate them, so don't give them any boundaries or whatsoever. And you find yourself in a position where you're never saying that's not okay to your child. There's no boundary. That also exasperates them. In fact, psychologists are are clear on this. If if there are no boundaries in a child-parent relationship, the the children feel unsafe. That might feel really counterintuitive. But there's a safety that comes with parents saying, that's not okay, you cannot do that. Or, that's okay, but actually if you cross that line, that is not right. And so we have to make sure that... We're asking ourselves, are there ways in which when we parent, we're actually exasperating our children, either through giving them too much or too little? And instead, what we're called to do, as Paul tells us, is to bring up our children, verse 4, in the training and instruction of the Lord. Fundamentally, we're meant to look to Jesus. And we're meant to say, what does the Word of God teach us about what we want our children to be learning what does Jesus model about what we want our children to be learning? How can we best model what it means to follow Jesus to our children? How can we model grace to our children? Do we, do we parent in a way where we're preaching the gospel? We're talking about the grace of God, but the way that we parent is completely devoid of grace. It's all about do's and don'ts. So there's no space for forgiveness. There's no space for saying, I know you don't actually deserve this tree, but I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to demonstrate what grace means? Do we demonstrate forgiveness to one another as married couples to our children? Do they see us apologize for our mistakes? This is parenting modeled on the gospel. And again, what I'm doing is just taking principles from scripture (laughs) because standing here as someone who is struggling to parent with young children, um, this is not coming out of experience. This is coming out of, right, what do we see Jesus doing? What do we see our father in heaven doing? How can we model following Jesus? Are there there habits and patterns that we can develop as families that enable our children to see us following Jesus and that enable us to bring them in on that? Because that's what we want ultimately. We want them to not just bring them up in discipline and instruction, which is good, but in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Can I appeal to you, parents, please don't leave it to our culture to train our children. Teachers are wonderful. Thank God for them. Absolute blessing. Blessing. But we cannot leave it as the main responsibility for training our children. We can't leave that to those who are not their parents. We are the first responsible. And I realize that there is a whole complex situations. I'm addressing here primarily the ideal scenario where you have a husband and a wife and a stable family. I realize there are huge exceptions. And for those of you who find yourself in situations such as being a single parent, or perhaps being a carer, or perhaps being carers for your grandchildren, I realize there's huge amounts of wisdom and support from the local church. But the principle still stands, we wanna make sure that we are training our children in the ways of the Lord, so that actually they're equipped when they do face things that come their way, either at school or in culture, to think, how, how would mum and dad navigate that? How would, how would they do that? And I think that that reflects how Jesus would navigate that. So can I encourage us, let's avoid those two extremes, as parents, and let's raise our children in the instruction of the Lord, and let's help one another to do that. It's very difficult to raise children. It's much easier when you've got people around you. Both other families, but also people who've been there before, whose children are grown up, and also people who don't have kids. We all have wisdom to be able to help and equip one another. So parents and children, we gravitate around Jesus in our relationship. And now we move on to the second relationship and the one that perhaps you've been thinking, why has Dan just mentioned slaves and masters without any real qualification? What on earth are we about to talk about? The second relationship of in charge, not in charge that Paul talks about is slaves and masters. And so we're going to read verses 5 to to 9. But one thing we need to realize before we read it is that although parents and children was a relationship that was instituted by God and that God blesses and likes. So he, God, God's looking at parents being in charge, children not being in charge, and he's saying, that's the way I set it up. He looks at the relationship of slave and master and he thinks, I did not set that relationship up. I do not love the idea of a human being owning another human being. And so Paul is giving instructions about how to deal with a situation that God, doesn't actually, God didn't actually set up in the first place. So just to kind of provide that caveat before we go in. Verses five to nine. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. You know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters... Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Slavery. In Paul's time, in the Roman Empire, slavery was a reality of life. And in fact, lots of early Christians, if not the majority of early Christians, would themselves have been slaves. And a number of early Christians would have been converted and they would have owned slaves. They would have been slave masters. And as I said, this isn't a God-ordained reality. This isn't something that God at creation said, and I'm going to institute this idea of slavery and it's going to be wonderful. No, God doesn't like, he hates the idea of a human being owning another human being. But that was the reality of life in the world that Paul lived in. So why doesn't Paul say, slaves, run away from your masters because Christ has set you free? Masters, free your slaves because you're all equal in Christ. Why didn't he say that? Well, I think there's at least a couple of reasons that might help us. Firstly, the Roman Empire wasn't a democracy. There'd been a number of slave revolts um, over, over time. Some of you might have heard of Spartacus. Most of the time, what happens when there were slave revolts in the Roman Empire was that the slaves ended up being crucified. There were no workers' rights. There were no unions. There was no right to protest. And so actually, if Paul says, slaves, run away from your masters because you're all free in Christ, Paul would most likely find himself with large numbers of his churches being killed by the Romans for having run away. So there's perhaps one reason that Paul doesn't jump straight in like that. On the flip side, if Paul, speaking to Christian masters, told them to and said, you're Christians, I know you own slaves, free them. If he just made that a blanket rule, In all likelihood, a large number of people in Paul's churches would also find themselves without any way of surviving. Because although it was a wrong institution, if you took away slavery completely overnight in the Roman Empire, millions of slaves would find themselves going, I have no way of surviving. I depend on being a slave and working as a slave in order to actually make my living. So there's a couple of reasons why Paul probably doesn't just jump in and say, that's it, everyone free. But having said that, if you read other parts of Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians 7 would be a good start. Philemon, what you'll see is Paul starts laying the foundation for the idea of slaves taking their freedom, if they find the opportunity to, and for Christian masters freeing their slaves. But what Paul's doing here in Ephesians is he's trying to help the Ephesian church to make the best of a bad situation. There are masters, there are slaves... Bearing in mind that you can't just change that situation, which many of you may find yourself in those kind of contexts, not hopefully not slave and master. If that is, please, we, we need to hear about that. And in all fairness and honesty, I realise slavery is illegal, but I'm under no illusion that modern slavery is not something that happens. But I hope that most of you or any of you don't find yourself in that setting, but you may find yourself in situations where you think, I can't get out of this. It's not possible to get out of this. It's not ideal. How do I make the best of a bad situation? And that's what Paul's doing here. And the way he does it is to revolutionize the relationship between slaves and masters, as we'll see. He does something absolutely radical with that relationship. But before we jump into explaining the passage, bearing in mind that slavery, praise God, is not legal in this nation. How do we apply this? How do we read a passage about slaves and masters and apply that to ourselves? And I'm gonna suggest that probably the closest parallel that we might have would be the relationship between employees and bosses, or between workers and managers. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look to apply it in the setting of the workplace, which hopefully would, would cover, I imagine, most people in this room, either currently or at some point in their life, they will either be working for someone or they will be working over someone, or perhaps both. Some of you will be managers who have managers above you and managers below you. So we're going to look to apply it in that way. But we need to remember whilst we're doing that, we can't just read the passage as if it was talking about employers and employees. Because when it comes to employees and employees, there are legal obligations, there are rules, there are rights. That's not the case with slavery. So we need to bear that in mind. And on the flip side, we are not the Lord's employees. Paul makes a parallel between the fact that Jesus is our master and we are his slaves. We're not his employees. He's not our employer. It's a very different kind of relationship. So having said, we're going to apply it that way. We need to make sure we remember the passage is talking about something far darker And actually, the answer that Paul gives is far more radical, but we're still going to look to apply it in that work context. So what does it look like for the slave-master or employer-employee relationship to gravitate around Jesus, just as it did with parents and children? Well, it looks like this. Let's reread verses 5 to 7. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them... Not to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. We work, those of us who have bosses, we work first and foremost for Jesus. And because of this, Christians should actually be the most diligent, most respectful, most honoring, hardworking employees ever. Because they realize that fundamentally, they're not ultimately working for their bosses. They're working for their master in heaven. We're doing work as an act of worship. And when you realize and remind yourself that your work is an act of worship to Jesus before it's an act of service to your boss, it transforms the way that you work. It means you avoid what Paul calls eye service or people pleasing. You know the idea where you only work when your boss is looking. Kind of like, you. oh, my boss is here, right, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh he's gone out of the room, great. Oh, how, what did you get up to this weekend? Yeah, oh, let me just browse Facebook. Oh, he's back. That kind of very stark reality, but that idea of only working when you know that your boss is watching. Well, knowing that you're worshipping Jesus through your work changes that because your ultimate boss never leaves the room. He never goes out to have a coffee break. He's always there. And, he's, and so to know that, we are worshipping Jesus avoids that idea. And that's particularly big when it comes to working from home. And I, and I, I can relate to that. And very often it's not, not just to do with laziness. It can be. Sometimes it's just pure and simple laziness and we need to repent of, of that. Sometimes it's distraction. Working from home can be a very much more distracting environment than if you're in an office because everyone else is working. So you're like, well, I, should, I better work. And you just get distracted. And that, that happens sometimes. I find myself getting distracted by something and reminding myself, wait, no, I had this work that I was meant to be doing. And reminding myself I'm worshipping Jesus through my work can help us in those moments where we're, we're fundamentally not working to please a human being, we're working to please Christ. I don't ultimately serve my employer as much as I love my employers. I'm working to serve Christ. It also helps us with annoying or unreasonable bosses. Now again, there are if, if you have an abusive boss... There are legal regulations, there are ways that you can go about um, raising those concerns and addressing that. But if you have an annoying boss, or a boss who's just disorganized, gives you work at the last minute or so on, remembering, I'm ultimately serving Christ, helps you in those moments where you think, I am going to do this and I'm going to do this with all my might and all my strength, because fundamentally I'm not working to please this really disorganized boss who's actually quite annoying. I'm working to please the very, very organized and wonderfully pleasing Christ. I think it makes a difference when you realize that. Another way that I think we can end up falling into this trap of people-pleasing rather than work as worship is actually the other extreme, which is that you're so concerned about what your boss thinks of you that you don't know how to stop working. Where So for some of us, the problem is, we're so concerned what our boss thinks that we only work when, when he's around. For some of us, perhaps the problem is we don't know how to stop working because we're paranoid about what our boss thinks about us. So you find yourself well beyond the end of the workday, checking your emails, replying to emails, doing extra work and so on, that you're not getting paid for, you're not, you're, no one's requiring you to do that, but you realize you're doing it fundamentally because you're fearful of your boss rather than living in the fear of God. And I think overworking can often be as much a sign of people pleasing as only working when your boss is around. And realizing we work to worship Jesus helps us avoid the two extremes. It transforms the way you work. So, can I encourage you, when you are working, if you are employees or you are working to a particular boss or a particular manager, work hard, work with all your heart, work with respect. Work with love. Work with honor. Why? Because fundamentally, you're serving Christ. You're serving a boss who's never going to disappoint you, who's never going to let you down, who's never going to be abusive, who's never going to be unfair. We worship him. And that helps us in those moments where we have less than ideal bosses or we have less than ideal temperaments brought to work. So that's slaves or um, employees. But on the flip side, Paul addresses masters or I'm going to suggest it could apply to those of us who are in positions of responsibility over other people. And he says this, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. I don't think we realize how radical that statement is, because we don't live in a world where people assume it's normal for one human being to own another human being. And we also live in a world that has got the International Charter of Human Rights that I think starts with, we hold it as self-evident that all human beings are created equal. For us, it's, it, that's just common sense. For most people in our country, that's common sense. All human beings are created evil. One human being is not superior to another. You can't own one. Can I tell you, that became self-evident, a self-evident because of Christianity. The idea that a human being should not own another human being as a basic reality of life became obvious to people because of the influence of Christianity. It's wonderful. It's right. But in the ancient world, no one operated with that assumption. People thought, of course slaves are inferior to masters. Of course masters are more important than slaves. What are you talking about? And Paul says here, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. That's what the gospel does. The gospel takes relationships where someone is considered to be superior, not just in charge, but superior, better than the other person, and one person is considered to be disposable. They're not really even human. And he says, no, you are on a level playing field in the gospel. Your father in heaven looks at both of you and he sees you without any favoritism towards either of you. That is absolutely radical. And so Paul brings the gospel and he brings it to bear on masters and slaves. And he says, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven And there is no favoritism in him. So what does it look like to be a boss or a... Well, a boss, hopefully, for you guys, or in that context, a master that gravitates around Jesus? It means fundamentally, you remember, you both have the same boss. Fundamentally, Christian bosses, Christian employees, have the same boss. They have the same person that they ultimately answer to. And you recognize in line with Jesus, that authority is meant to be a thing that serves, not a thing that's meant for you to be served. And that means that you end up being fair. So Paul says, stop your threats or do not threaten. So he's speaking to he's saying, don't use threats as a way of motivating your workers. Now that doesn't mean that it's never right to fire someone. It doesn't mean it's never right to use disciplinary procedures. Absolutely not. That's not what Paul's saying. But what Paul's saying is, you act fairly. You act fairly. How, how, those of you who are in positions of responsibility, who are managers, how, how are you doing on this? Do you act fairly towards your employees? Do you act fairly towards those who are in your, under your responsibility? Or do you threaten? Sometimes it can be subtle. It doesn't have to be shouting at them, saying, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you or whatever. It can be more subtle than that. Do you threaten or do you motivate with fairness? Do your employees, would your employees say of you, it doesn't matter who you are, you're gonna get treated fairly by this boss. What a wonderful example that is to the workplace, where there's so much favoritism, there's so much people being treated differently. What, a, what an amazing testimony to the gospel it would be to have Christian bosses of whom their employees say, well, we might not agree with everything that they do, but they treat everyone the same. They treat everyone fairly. You can't fault them on that front. That's what the gospel does. It transforms the way we do those relationships. It means you're not showing favoritism. It means you're not giving promotions to your friends just because they're your friends when there's someone else who deserves it far more. It means you're saying, wait, I'm, no, I'm going I'm to represent the values of Christ in this relationship. We want to make sure that we gravitate around Jesus. And that transforms the way that we do these relationships of in charge, <laughs> not in charge. But finally, as we wrap up, there's an extra motivation for all of us in verse eight. Paul was specifically speaking to slaves in in verse eight, but he applies it more broadly. And he says this, you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Paul says, if you're a follower of Jesus, every time you have diligently worked for your annoying boss, whether or not they were watching, every time you have worked hard to meet the targets that you were set, every time as a boss you have treated your employees with fairness and respect, every time you've even had to carry out a difficult thing such as firing someone but done it in a way that was completely above reproach and ethical and fair, every time you do one of those things, your master in heaven sees. And there's a day where he is going to reward you for that. But we don't often speak of the idea of rewards because we, I, I think we intuitively think of it as, oh, no, 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 that no, surely we shouldn't be motivated by the idea of reward. Well, Jesus motivated with the idea of reward. He said, when you pray, don't pray like that, pray like that, then your Father in heaven will see and will reward you. Jesus motivated with rewards. And we must have to make sure we're not more spiritual than Jesus. So there's a motivation for all of us, actually, whatever good we do, whenever we are living out the gospel in our day-to-day lives, we have a merciful, wonderful master in heaven who sees what we do and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. One day, when you stand in glory, you are going to be rewarded for what you have done. So can I encourage you, both for the sake of living the gospel out in this world and for the sake of receiving a reward that will never perish and will never fade in eternity, let's, gravitate our relationships around Jesus. That's what we want to do. And so as we come into land, we need to finally ask the question, how do we do this? This It's all very good to say, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, you should do that. Look at how the gospel works. We need to ask the question, how do we actually do this? I'm sure that it's a really good thing to do, but how do we find the power to actually live this out? And this is the moment we need to remember that everything that we've covered over the last two weeks whether that's husbands and wives, parents, children, slaves, masters, flows out of chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says this, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And so much flows out of that statement. You can only apply this, you can only live this out when you're not doing it in your own strength, but you're doing it in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And so, kind of thinking this is a very practical sermon. How do you respond to it? Well, the way I would love us to respond is by asking God to fill us afresh with the Spirit. Because that's the only way we can do this. We cannot do this in our own strength. God doesn't expect us to do it in our own strength. We can only do it by being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the way we're going to do that is we are going to, first of all, take communion together. Because the Holy Spirit is only given because of what Jesus has done. And so we're going to take communion together. We're going to remember and participate together in this act of sharing in the body of Christ, sharing in the blood of Christ, remembering what he has done for us. And so we're going to do that together. And then, in fact, would someone mind giving me my, uh, my little pot wherever it is so I can also do it? Um, if you do need a pot, please do put your hand up for, um, for, the stu- uh, for one of the stewards who will come and... One one. So we're going to take communion together. We're going to celebrate, remember what Jesus has done. And we're going to remember that because of what Jesus has done, he has poured his spirit out so that not, not just that we would enjoy meetings where the presence of God is here, as wonderful as those are, but so that we would also be empowered to live lives that look different to the world. And so we're going to take communion now. So let's, those of you who don't know how to open this, peel the little... Um, Film off at the top. Uh, let's remember this is Jesus' body that was broken for us. Let's take this together and remember his body broken. Thank you, Father. Right. And now let's take the wine or the grape juice together and remember this is. The blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant, poured out for many. As we do that, maybe if the, the band could come up, we're going to sing in a few minutes. Um, we're going to well, when when. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. It's immediately followed by singing psalms and songs and spiritual songs to one another, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. So one one of the ways that the Spirit loves to move is through us praising Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit fills us, He inspires more songs in our hearts. So we're going to do that in a minute. But why don't we, before that, why don't we stand, if you're able, and I'm going to pray for us that we would experience filling afresh by the Holy Spirit. So that... In whatever way you feel the Lord has spoken to you through what I've shared, that he would empower us to apply this to our lives. So let's do whatever it, whatever helps you to engage with God. It may be that you want to put your hands out, put your hands in the air, um, close your eyes, keep your eyes open. There's no real formula to it. I'm going to pray for us. Father, I thank you that when Jesus died on the cross, I thank you that... Uh, Not only did his blood pour out, but he secured the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And Father, I thank you that without the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. We have no ability to really genuinely live the kind of life that Paul is talking about in this passage. But I thank you that because of the good news of Jesus, because of the Spirit being poured out, you can empower us to live lives that the world looks at and goes, that is different That is different. There's something fundamentally different about the way they live. And Father, we want to be a church that knows what it is to do parent child relationships in a way that's centered around the gospel. We need your spirit. I need your spirit to be a good father. Many people in this room, in fact, all of us who are parents, need your spirit to be good parents. Those of us who are children and who know you, we need your spirit to. Trust and obey our parents. Father, I pray for empowering by the Spirit to be able to be a church that lives that out. I pray for empowering by the Spirit to be a church that does um, employer-employee relationships really well. Lord, I want to see many, many, many managers and bosses amongst us and many, many, many employees and, and workers amongst us who work hard for the Lord first and foremost. We can't do that without your Spirit, Lord. And so we pray, would you fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit? Help us, Lord. I thank you that there may be numbers of us here today who have felt the loving conviction of the Holy Spirit in various areas of parenting or various areas of work. I thank you you bring that conviction in order to then transform us and empower us to be able to repent from that. It's a good thing. It's a loving thing. And so, Father, I pray that you would empower us afresh with the Spirit so that the world would look at us and when we preach the gospel, they would say, you know what? You don't just talk the talk, you you walk the walk. You live in light with that. Clearly, something has happened. It's not just that you believe something that sounds good, it's that something has transformed the way that you live. And so Father, we wanna be a church that is transformed by the power of the Spirit. So we pray, Father, would you fill us afresh? And I pray, Father, as we turn now to worship, to sing psalms and spiritual songs, to make melody in our hearts to the Lord. I pray you would continue to fill us with the Spirit, that we'd go from this place with uh, joy in our hearts, with empowerment by the Spirit, to see Christ magnified, Christ glorified, and ourselves as his joyful servants. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.